Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on this show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they and you could found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about the science, specific science-related topics such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot of and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. There are two main episode types. One, the case study where one or a group of people talk about what they did and you can kind of get a sense of how you could do it as well. To the second type, which is a group talking around a theme such as citric greening, which is coming up soon, or neurodegenerative disorders, which I'm also working on. Please sign up for our newsletter to get a other resources and outside podcast content from guests of my own research, which comes out every Monday. Join us every Tuesday for new podcast releases and check out the website every Thursday for something new. You can find us at, at Lowell here on Twitter, Facebook, and my website, learningwithlowell.com. And don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review. It takes really only 10 seconds for you to do any of those things, which helps me and my guests create great content because it gives us feedback. Let's let other people know about it. And the more people will know about science and support it, the better everything is. Today we are joined with James Stewart, the educational coordinator at the Aquarium of the Pacific, who takes people out on trips into the Pacific to look at marine life, such as whales. We get in this episode into his love for whales, basically in any marine life, how he moved from Colorado to California, the things he's interested, what he wants to do with his life, how to be involved with conservation to a great extent. And we get a little bit of everything. We get a sense of what an educational coordinator's life is like at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Editor note, the name of the scientist doing work from the SDSU on whale acoustics, about the eight-minute mark, Dr. Ted Cranford. James accidentally spoke incorrectly, and we wanted to, you know, correct that so the wrong person doesn't get credit. All right, let's get into this. You're like the whale guy. What is the... Of all the whales in the sea, what's the whale that you like <laughs> the most? What's like your 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 go-to whale? That's kind of a it's a fun question because there's a lot about whales that is so much fun to talk about. But the weird thing is, I don't really have just one singular whale that's my go-to favorite. Uh, a lot of people do. Like my predecessor, she loves orca. She's gone and studied orca. Um, some of my naturalists that go on the boat, they have their one favorite whale that they always love to see. I kind of just like them all, uh, which makes it tough, I guess, to get super in-depth in the studies of any one particular whale. But one of the ones I do like to talk about a lot during our winter season is the Pacific white-sided dolphin. They are a seasonal dolphin. They they do a north-south migration versus nearshore, offshore. So they're kind of following the temperate waters where we get those in the winter. And then during our summers, they head back a little bit farther north to central California and a little bit farther up. I would say they are probably my favorite to see on the water when I want to get pictures of the most. What about them, like, strikes you so much? When you think of the iconic dolphin, what dolphin comes to your mind when you think of a dolphin? The silvery ones that attack people sometimes. You probably, I think you're talking about bottlenose. Yeah, the gray ones. I, I didn't mean silver. I have, I'm bad with colors. That's okay. Uh, so the, the idea of flipper, the bottlenose dolphin, and for a lot of people it is. It's one of the most researched dolphins by cetacean scientists on the planet. The white-headed dolphin 
would strike you as so very different because their their face is different. They don't have the long kind of beak shape of a of a rostrum. Their nose, like a bottlenose does. They're very starkly colored to black and white and gray. So they their pattern is very distinct, and they're not as large as a bottlenose dolphin either. They're getting maybe six to seven feet long. Whereas a bottlenose can be over 10 feet long and over a thousand pounds. So they, when you see a bottlenose, then you can, okay, yeah, that's a bottlenose dolphin. And then you see this other dolphin that that's not a dolphin because the colors are just so vastly different. I, it, when I first saw them, that was, I think one of the more beautiful things I, I saw when I was first starting doing whale watching. That's, that's a dolphin. Okay. I'm going to wrap my head around that. That's what a dolphin could look like. And then I started looking at other species like, Hector's dolphins and the Atlantic white-sided dolphin too, and then the striped dolphins. They, there's some beautiful coloration that you can find on dolphins. Do you? Uh, you mentioned Hector's dolphins. If you if you like get deep into the ocean, because I, I think we haven't explored. I think it's like one or two percent of the ocean we've explored. If you discover a dolphin, are you gonna like? Is it gonna be like James's dolphin, or like <laughs> would you do that as well? <laughs> um. I'm not sure I would because, I mean, look at some of the dolphins that are named after researchers and it just sounds like that should be the dolphin's name, like a Rizzo's dolphin or a Hector's. It's just like James's dolphin. That makes it sound like, no, that one's my dolphin. I, That's the one that I made that dolphin. It sounds a little less just like that's a dolphin species. So I might name it more after a region or something else that doesn't sound as much like, no, that's just mine. <laughs> you claim it. Um, so for, cause I've, I generally would move to the West coast just to see whales and dolphins because <laughs> that's like, I can only imagine how amazing it is to, to be around a creature well, that old, like they, they live, I know for whales, they live a very, very long time and they, they grow. I think there's a whale that grows like in the first year they put on 200 pounds a day. I think it's like the blue whale, if I remember correct. Yeah, the blue whale is the fastest growing animal on the planet with up to 200 pounds a day after birth. That's that's a lot of... I feel like they should have stretch marks, but they don't. Um, so, what are... Like, if you could... I assume, like, the L.A. region, that's probably, based on where you're based, that's where a lot of them go through. Are there any other hot spots that people in the States would really be like, oh, that's interesting, I'm going to go there and hang out there, or be surprised by? Yeah, the... The L.A. area, so when you're looking at a map of California and you look at the West Coast, you get down to a point, it's called Point Conception, and the coastline immensely changes from a north-south direction to an east-west direction because of that and then the Channel Islands that were caused by volcanic activity. We get unique currents in here, so we get a lot of things that just hang out in this area. But other hotspots that people can check out are Monterey Bay is definitely a Last year has been really, really impressive. With they had a lot of blue whale sightings there last summer. Um, there's been a lot of orca and humpback sightings. They, I saw a post from somebody I know that works up there. They just had a bunch of the right whale dolphins pass by. Um, Alaska is also a good spot. So there's, there's pretty well known hotspots for whale watching activity. Even if you're just walking along the shoreline in certain areas, you can just find whales as you're walking along the trail. And that'd be awesome. I'm a, I'm a big hiker, so I just I can just imagine like going around a, a bend and like seeing a whale. 
I'd probably just sit there. Like, how, how how can you not, like, appreciate the world when you have something, like, just so crazy out there? Oh, definitely. I get so jealous at, at a former co-worker. He works at a Monterey Bay whale, whale watch company now. And he posts pictures on his Facebook and his Instagram. Oh, I'm on my way to work. I got to see a pot of orca. I'm just, Eric, that's not, you're not helping me. I'm not seeing what you're seeing. You're making me jealous. We can go up there. What, it's like four hours away? It could be like a weekend trip. Yeah, I, I realize that I just don't get up there very much. So uh, it's not far away for us, but it's a, definitely one of my things is I want to go observe and experience how other people around just the United States, but other places uh, really appreciate their whales and want to observe sea life. What are what are some facts about whales that people generally do not know or marine life in general? Like anything that's like, like if you're like having like sitting around a table with your friends and you're just like, I'm going to, I'm going to rock your world with these facts. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you have anything that great, but do you anything uh, jump to mind? One of my favorite facts to tell people is the way that you can tell the age of a whale. Unfortunately, you can't exactly tell when they're alive unless you observe them being born and you've been cataloging their locations their whole lifetime. Uh, but you can test their earwax after they're dead and it kind of grows like tree rings. So you can get an earwax glob and essentially dissect the earwax glob and figure out how old a whale was. That is amazing. I didn't even know whales. I thought they just kind of like an embouchure or something that like like a membrane and just kind of like that's how they absorb sound. I didn't think they had like an ear hole. They don't have ear structures exactly like we do, which is kind of the cool thing. The way that they hear can be very different. So they do have auditory nerves. They do have the bones, the hammer, sapies, and animal that they can hear sounds with, but it traveling through their skull in a different pattern. So now thinking about a whale having ears like us, I have an image in my mind of like human ears and a whale, and it just makes me giggle. But they they can hear, and there's so much cool research going on right now about whale acoustics, not just in terms of learning about their sounds, their dialects, their ways that they talk, but how their brains actually would process the information. How does the sound actually get inside a whale's head? And it's amazing what they're coming up with. Anything that is noteworthy that you have been using on your tours? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to listen to a scientist. I think he works out of San Diego, uh, Dr. Ted Kransky. He is had a lifetime of working with whale acoustics and what he gets to do, this is the craziest thing. I love telling guests this. They look at me so goofy. Is that, you know, you if you find a, a, a whale that's beached itself, the scientists will take tissue samples to kind of assess what the condition of the whale was. They can do a necropsy, which is like an animal autopsy, and figure out what was the cause of death. But in some cases, Dr. Kransky comes down and he says, hey, can I have the head of that animal? Which sounds morbid and weird. But what they can do is take the, the animal's skull and you know the front part of their body and do an MRI before anybody's opened up the tissues, which once you start to open up the tissue, you do your necropsy, the, the shape of the tissues change. So imagine anybody that's ever done like a high school or college dissection, as soon as you open an animal up to examine the body parts, their conformation is changing because the, the fluids are coming out or you've trim some connective tissue that no longer holds what it's supposed to hold in place. So 
you don't get the same imagery as if you just take the whole thing and scan it. So what they've done is done MRIs of not only some beaked whale heads, but they had an opportunity to do an MRI on a juvenile fin whale head, which doesn't fit in a human MRI machine. So they actually had to call the military and schedule time with their rocket scanner, which just blows my mind that they they basically flash froze this whale skull, packed it in expanding foam in a cylinder, took the whole thing to this rocket scanner, scanned it, and they can learn so much more about the internal biology and the conformations of the bones to the soft tissue and how the sounds could possibly enter the brain. And they have algorithms. I don't even understand how the math comes into this to calculate where the best direction for the sound to enter the skull would be or where the sound's coming out of a skull. So they found out with dolphins that they could test the melon. So like the bulbous front forehead of a dolphin or beaked whale or other uh, animal like that, like a blue whale is a good example. You can think of the big bulbous front of their head. That the sounds that they're making for echolocation are focused by the adipose fatty tissue of the melon. And they their algorithms can actually change the density of the tissue so that if it was uh, denser tissue or close to bone or more uh, like muscle, how would the sound wave actually, the confirmation of the wave change if it exited the, the front of the animal? And so they can mathematically and visually confirm that fatty tissue is the best way for sound to be traveled using echolocation through the melon. That is fascinating. I had, I've never heard of that before. So that's like, I'm going to use that. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's fun to tell people that, you know, we could assume or we could hypothesize or find some kind of way to test the sound waves that are coming from, a dolphin or a whale and figure out where they may be strongest. But the math that they're using to actually look at the brain scans, not, not just the brain scan, but the, the whole spatial and skull scan, and they can uh, actually show that the narrow beam of sound coming from the melon would tell that animal where a potential prey item was. Oh, that's amazing. Although... A question I have for you, and this is uh, unrelated to what we're talking about right now, but when it when it comes to whales, are are whales smart? Like they, I, I imagine they have a big brain because their their body size, but are they like are they clever? Or are they are they sentient? Or when you when you interact with them, does it seem like there's a thinking creature kind of like messing back with you, or or is it? Hey, I'm just like a really <laughs> beautiful whale, and I'm going to go about my day. I definitely think that the what we'll learn from how we define intelligence and how we define sentience in the future could change how we view whales. Because the, the brain-to-body ratio for humans is considered the largest. And there are certain species of whale that definitely compete for similar ratio differentials. So, the like again, with the bottlenose and the studies they've done with them, they'll put a mirror in front of bottlenose and you can imagine, like, any cat or dog that you've seen on the internet, you put a mirror in front of them, and they're mad because you think you, they think you brought another animal home. They want to, they don't know what that animal is, so they can't recognize their own reflection. But these dolphins were recognizing their own reflection, but also just longingly staring at themselves for a while. So I think the fact that there's recognition of their own face, that it's not another animal, the 
communication level that a lot of the dolphins and whales have lends to credibility of a level of intelligence that they haven't been credited with in the history of our interactions with them. You can actually watch. Whales will, will actually stare at us sometimes. Uh, I've been on a whale watch one time where we had a juvenile humpback whale. It was about 25 to 30 feet long. So their maximum, they're getting up into the 40, upper 40-foot 40 range, 55, foot, uh, 55 feet. And this juvenile whale was just kind of hanging out next to us. And it would roll a little bit to its side and it's look at us. And then it kind of rolled back and just kind of keep going on and doing its thing. And so it was kind of paying attention, paying attention to us as we were just paying attention to it. We went on another whale watch where this humpback was just playing around. We call it a peck slap where they pick up their long pectoral fin and they just kind of slap it in the water. Doing some rolls and just very gentle, playful motions. And then somebody in a recreational boat, private boat, kind of came up real suddenly probably startled the whale or irritated it to a point where its behavior completely changed and it's all of its signals went towards hey i don't like that and it was made very aggressive tail slapping motion so i think it's not just kind of input output response when you look at the neuroscience of them but there's there's some intel intelligent value to it and potentially emotional value to some of the responses they're making yeah i think that yeah, identifying yourself is one of the big ones that we've come to recognize with sentience. But it just with 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 a creature that lives so long, well, there's like this weird. I don't know what this is termed, but there's probably like a term for this thought. But you know, you know how like in humans we get Leonardo da Vinci's or, or Einstein's or Stephen Hawking's, like these really like genius. You know, not this like they're the outliers, outlier of in the standard deviation of intelligence. Right. Right. Have you ever wondered like, what if there's like in the whale population, every now and again, or like in any population of animal, that like there's like a Leonardo da Vinci of whales, and it's just like, you know, it's just like thinking around and like it's the only sentient thing, and it can kind of tell. <laughs> I wonder this all the time. Like, imagine being like the first human that realized it was like what sentience was, and realized he was alone or she was alone, and it's just like your perspective across the entire other population of your same species, and you are so set apart from them that. They aren't even fully self-aware. Yeah. I don't know if there's, like, a, like people to think about that, but I think about that a lot. Like, because there has to be a first, you know? Like, it's not like all of a sudden there's thousands of sentient creatures. Like, it's like a gradient system, I would think, based on how evolution works. So it's like, yeah. Now, it's something I think about. Uh, <laughs> you'll, I don't know if uh, I'll, I'll plug you with that thought the next time you look at a whale and like, I want, if this, is this the one? Is this is this that one? Are you the first? Are you it? Yeah. Are you the next step? And then um, with whales, they live a really long time, right? Isn't it like like centuries and centuries? It kind of ranges depending on the species, but there's there's still more to discover about them. So the bowhead whale, the longest estimated life of one of them was about two hundred years. We have recorded incidents of. An orca living an estimated 100 years. That was uh, their tag was J2. She, her nickname was Granny. She was one of the resident orca of Washington. Uh, there's been, I think, a blue whale or two measured up to 90. I think a potential gray whale. This is like possibly one of the outliers that lived up to 90 years. But there, a lot of them are averaging. The big whales are averaging human lifespans. 
the Dolphins are a little bit younger. They are getting on average in the 40s and 50s, but again, there's potential for them to have just as long of a lifespan as humans. Well, aren't most long-lived organisms that move? Well, I'm saying that because I know there's like fungus and trees that are like tens of thousands of years old, but aren't aren't most mammals or or creatures that live a very long time in the sea like like they tend to like there I think there's a a, a green green Greenland a Greenland shark that lives like 400 years. Yeah, they based off of the data that they can collect off that shark, it's potentially living up to 400 years. So I just think there's probably, you know, like you're supposed to swim or whatever to like relax yourself. Like maybe one of the, this is not a serious <laughs> consideration, but one of one of the reasons that uh, whales and all these other marine life do so well, it's like it's like it's like floating in the middle of a pool is like really relaxing. So they're, like they're not as stressed out. If that's the case, then we definitely need to plug more uh, research, more swimming play, and see how it changes people's stress levels. I mean, I would be interested to see how the whale of cortisol levels, like the stress hormones, look in comparison to different uh, environments. But that's that's going down the line we probably can't go into. But so, what to jump to talking about you? How did you find? Like, how did you figure out that like this is the thing for you? Like, how did how did you know? What what was like the thing? If there was a thing, it was kind of a roundabout way to get to it. So. When I was in high school, I got to go on a school trip. It was a it counted as like a semester of science credit, and we got to go to Hawaii for two weeks to do marine biology. Now, from California, it may not seem like a, as big a thing, but I grew up in Colorado. There's no ocean unless you were living back in the Cretaceous period, and the so the opportunity was amazing. Like, oh, this is great! I I, I love the opportunity to study sea life. We don't have that here, and from that point. I've been passionate about marine science in some way. When I got to college, I had considered training to a coastal school to study marine biology, but I kind of fell into education, and I was really excited about teaching, and I, I felt like I really fit in as an educator, something that could shed light on the things that people don't know for them so that they can learn something new and kind of explore on their own. And so I taught high school biology for five years in Colorado, and my wife got a job transfer opportunity to come to either Chicago, which the Shedd Aquarium was, was there, so that was a potential, or Los Angeles. And I was like, well, they have an ocean, so I'm going to vote for Los Angeles. And so we came out here, and I've been out here for seven years now, and I was you know looking for work. What could I do? I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back into the public school system because at that time, the, the economy was kind of in still recovering from the recession. So, like, well, what, what can I do? So I started volunteering at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Wow, this place is awesome. I love this. So I got a job, and I kind of worked my way up. And I was offered the position to be the boat program coordinator. Like, I, I'm not sure what that person does, but I'm on board. Let's see what we can do. And once I was whale watching and getting the opportunity to work with our naturalists to help them provide the best educational experience for our guests as possible. It's like, this is amazing. I, my office could be on a whale watch boat out 10 miles off from shore. I don't know how you say that's not a good thing. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of 
take the reins of a program where we're using a form of outreach. We're taking guests out to a, a wild habitat and showing off these animals, and we get to educate about them while while they're out there. Well, I imagine it's really rewarding just being able to like. Well, I actually, this would probably be a question. Has anyone ever gone out on the boat and, and seen a whale and been like, "Oh, yeah," and like kind of just like disparaging, like, "Oh, just a <laughs> just a really giant creature that lives in the ocean," you know? Like, is, have you ever had that experience, or is it is it woefully positive when people go out there? I've had a couple of whale watches where everyone was amazed and flabbergasted and just having a great time. But there's other whale watches where. You can definitely tell that the effort to go on the whale watch was more for some of their family members than for them. And either it's been something that they saw a lot of beforehand or they were not as interested in whale watching. So I wouldn't say they were really disparaging, but there's have been some guests with a ho-hum attitude, and that's okay. As long as I think they're having fun on the boat and they're enjoying themselves, I'm happy. Even if it's like, oh, I knew everything you were going to teach me. I'm not worried about it. Like, okay, that's cool. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Well, then uh, that's part of the experience is that you're enjoying being out on the water with us and uh, getting to at least see other people and uh, see the whales and enjoy that too. Well, hopefully they were able to, you know, take the moment. Like even if you're doing something you don't want to do, I think it's always important to be in the moment and appreciate it. Because like how, how often do you get to like see a whale? I mean, like, come on, like no matter what's going on in your life, if you're face-to-face with a whale or a dolphin or, or on the ocean or just doing anything. I don't know, like, try and enjoy it as much as possible. Oh, yeah. There's definitely days where it's a little stressful here or you're just kind of having a bad day and, like, mm, maybe I want to go on a whale watch today and clear my head. So I always find it enjoyable to get out of the water, even if there's not much to see. So I'm hoping our guests are enjoying themselves. And that's part of the thing we talk to our naturalists about is, you know, you're you're not just there as an educator on the boat. Make some personal connections. If they don't care about whales, but they're wearing a USC Trojan hat, maybe talk to them about basketball or their sport. Or hey, oh, I'm not a Trojan fan. Ooh, I hope we're not. You know, so they, I have them try to develop some personal connections so that that a guest at least feels like this this is a good. This is okay. I had a good time. Well, so. You kind of like, there's a, a person who's uh, studying polar bears named BJ who did a very similar thing of working his way into his position. Where where do you see yourself in the future? Like if, not, I don't want to give you an existential crisis of <laughs> like, where, where am I? But um, do you, do you see, is there like a specific avenue within where you're at that you think, oh, I, I really love this aspect of what I'm doing, but like I see that position as like a, a, as like the next step for you or, or move if when I would move on from this position would be more into potentially driving the content that we're presenting. I mean, I already helped with that in our own program, but I mean, across the aquarium, I think that would be really interesting to start delving into is what do we want to present to our, our public? What do we want to say? How are we going to say, where are we going to say it? Is there, more than just the four walls kind of uh, idea or attitude to teaching our guests about our animals and kind of developing the new content and embracing the new technology and methods of communication to kind of help keep that going with with people's needs and wants in terms of 
how they want to gather information, how they want to learn. I could see be good, doing good on that, especially when you've been in the uh, the analogous to the the coal face. Like if you if you know a uh, minor parlance, where you're like at the face of it, you know, like interacting with guests, seeing the marine right. life, like that's that's to a great extent the entire purpose of an aquarium. So like you've got to get a, a lot of that firsthand experience and to get a sense for what people care about. So I think that'd be like a a very good transition because you could take those experiences of of making those human connections and, and making those um, connections with, with the story of the animals and like translating it to, you know, like press releases or like stories about things that are going on. Cause I, I imagine you'd have a, a pretty good sense of what people would care about. I would like to hope so. Um, you, start to, you start to talk to a person that walks through and each person has their own idea about the same animal. 10 people could be looking at, our giant sea bass, and they all have a different perspective. And it's that questioning: where, where is it? What is that perspective? What do you want to know? Do you, do you even want to know anything about this animal, or should I show you something else that would make you more excited? Uh, there's definitely that foundation of learning what the guests are looking for and helping fill that that desire, that want, when it comes to our guest interactions. Yeah, definitely. Is there uh, jumping back to the to the whales again? I know. I think most people, I would hope, know that for a while the whale populations were significantly decreasing. You know, about the you know the eighteen fifties in particular. I think a lot of them were being hunted. Are, are are they doing well? Are like like are whale populations rebounding? Like are they? Is it is are whales and marine life overall trending in a positive direction or a negative direction? If to like summarize it succinctly the quickest way to answer is yes or no <laughs> the it depends on the species is the honest uh, answer and it, in some cases scientists aren't entirely sure why some are not recovering as well and others have so one of the very good examples are gray whales and humpback whales uh, we see them a lot in california especially gray whales and if you look at their whaling history, the, the whalers would start with some of the biggest species, so blue whales and fin whales, and when their populations would get too small to make it worth the financial effort to kind of hunt for them, they would move down to some of the smaller species. So the, some of the bigger species are recovering okay. They're not as high of a population spike as we would like to see, like the blue whales. Their populations have held pretty steady for about 20 years or more. And they have the potential to recover higher. So globally, blue whale population has been estimated up to about 20,000, which before whaling could have been in the hundreds of thousands. We just we don't know the exact numbers, but based off of the collection records of whaling ships, that's where some of the estimates are, is at least one to 200,000 for certain species. And so they, they're not recovering nearly as well as the gray whale has a gray whale population just for the eastern pacific that's mostly where they live now is 26,000 so the gray whales actually used to live in both the pacific and the atlantic and the atlantic gray whales there may have been some other factors that were causing their their extinction besides whaling because they, i think they went extinct in the 1800s or 1700s the early early whaling days kind of removed them from the atlantic waters and then the Western Pacific gray whales, these are the whales that live by Japan, Korea, Russia. 
there there's the local population is maybe 100 whales which is pretty low when you think about on our side of the ocean we have the other 25,900 so whatever we did to help promote the safety of these whales they recovered immensely in a couple hundred years and a lot of that actually came from the local culture in Mexico so in Baja where they're going for their birthing grounds and their breeding grounds the local fisheries there you know they used to hunt whales too but they kind of saw that hey there's not enough whales it's not worth hunting oh we need to protect these whales and then the attitude completely flipped to a conservation effort and if you go down to San Ignacio to go and hang out with the great whales when they go to the birthing lagoons, they're very protective of what of what you can do, how many people can go out at a time when people are on a boat. And the way that the whales treat the people now, where it's like they, the whales welcome the people. The, the, a great whale has been seen raising the calf slightly in the water to like, hey, this is my baby. If you want to see my baby, like that's the, the anthropomorphized, anthropomorphized attitude that we're getting from them. And before... Gray whales are actually nicknamed devilfish because of how aggressive they would be against whaling canoes and whaling ships. So some whales have, have recovered really well, and some whales have recovered okay, and then other whales are not doing as well. And part of it is, you know, there's the negative interactions, the negative aspects of how we still treat the oceans so that their populations just haven't been able to recover. So, do they, I imagine they have a, a rather lar- long jar- gesta- gesticulation, gesticulation, gestation, Jesus, there you go, lol, <laughs> gestation period, <laughs> that's probably, you know, like elephants have 22 months from, you know, conception to birth, what, what is, I mean, I'm sure there's variance, but like, do whales have an equally long gestation period? Oddly enough, no, <laughs> so a, uh, a, an elephant, like, is almost two years, but and you think of a human, okay, nine months versus an elephant, that seems to be logical. If it's such a bigger animal, it takes two years to get to that point. A lot of these whales are being born after 10 to 13 months. And you think about a blue whale, gestation's about a year, and they're being born at 15 to 20 feet long and thousands of pounds. They grow fast. They are you know, just a little bit longer than human gestation periods, and they are significantly bigger than us when they're born. Well, that's fascinating. I was, I was just thinking, like, I wonder if the gestation period has a factor in it, but I can't imagine having tons of plastic and all this other crap we're, we're dumping into the waters helping at all, either. Um, I've, always, I've always felt like, I think there was a, a study that recently came out that said that the Mississippi is one of the most polluted rivers in the world. It's like, because of like the stuff we dump in it, and then like you can't yep. really fish from it anymore because no one wants to eat polluted fish. So, when it comes to transitioning to conservation, this is a really good uh, transition for us. What are what are some things that you've noticed as being like you know the Baja people and the the birthing pot uh, lagoons? What are some instances like that that people can be really proud of of the conservation that's been done so far when it comes to marine life? One of the things that I didn't fully make the connection of when I lived in Colorado was how much effect we have as a terrestrial species, we have to the aquatic species. And it seems like there's such a disconnect 
I forget, I think this was a comedian or another scientist that was like, well, why do we call this planet Earth? 70% of it is covered with water. Why did we call it planet Earth? It's all because of our perspective, how we've been taught to perceive our surroundings. And that disconnect of when I don't do this thing like recycling or saving energy or you know putting the batteries in a recycle bin versus in a trash bin, what happens to it afterwards? It's kind of a similar disconnect that people got into when they couldn't understand the, the uh, like food-to-table aspect of how did my chicken eggs get on my table in the morning? Where did it come from? It's not just that I picked it up from the store. It came from somewhere else. So that disconnect of all the in-between steps, I think, has been, it's been lost a little bit. In When I got to California and a lot of the efforts they make to, especially in the coastal cities and coastal towns, to reduce some of the plastic use, uh, like single-use plastic bags, there's, you know, the contention of and the irritation of, oh, I have to bring my own shopping bags or I have to pay for shopping bags. But at the same time, when I'm out on the whale watch and we're 12 miles offshore and I see shopping bags 12 miles out, it's that immediate like hit to your heart of that was somebody's shopping bag and it wasn't disposed of properly and now it's out here here and anything that might suck it up could it could get stuck into their digestive tract and that's immensely powerful to see firsthand and feel I should really be better about how I take care and discard of my my waste product well there's a <clears throat> in Norway they have this I don't know if it's a state sponsored thing but I know the people when they go out and hiking or, or walking, or what when they're outside. And I do this too. Like this is one of the things I've been trying to do. Uh, they take a they they they'll pick up a plastic bag that they find, and they'll fill up that trash the plastic bag with trash they find, and then they'll recycle it accordingly. So it's like little things like that. Like every person when they're going up about their day, like it like you're saying, you know, you see plastic bags everywhere. So just like pick one up and like stuff it full of the stuff you see, and you make the planet a little bit more clean. Yeah, definitely. I mean. When we try to talk to guests about the things that they can do, and we don't want to have this like, well, the earth is dying. So there, there you have it. That's it. You don't want to leave them with that, oh, I guess I shouldn't be able to do anything. We're all doomed. We've hit the point of no return. So you want to leave them with something that they can do. And, you know, the, the little things, like you said, like just that idea or that culture of we can all clean a little bit. We can all help out. That really is something, the message that we've been pushing with guests. And you can see it, especially with the school kids that come through here, uh, either for our, our uh, field trip classes or people on the boat. And we, we show them, we they see the effect of trash not being recycled or disposed of properly. And they have that idea of, oh, I'm going to make sure I put my candy wrapper or my water bottle or my whatever in the right receptacle. And the, the kids especially are fairly on board with it. They think they really see that they love the animals, that, that curiosity, that entranced feel that they have of these animals are so amazing. I should do what I can to help them. And if just putting away my trash is one of the best things I can do, I'm going to do that. And then we hope that it continues on into their adulthood or like they share with their family and they get their families involved. And so that, that paradigm shift of how we treat our environment, how we, we work around the waste products and dispose of them the way we should can kind of alter our 
our state and we can clean up our habitats. So that, those are a couple of good examples of what we can do every, like the rest of us. Are there any more? Are there any more that maybe people wouldn't be aware of? Like simple things like, like things to stay away from? Because I think one of the best ways that people vote other than to vote is, is with their dollar, you know, like how you spend your money. Like people respond to that, you know? So like, is there anything that people can do on that front? Like, oh, you know, stay away from that type of product or be mindful of these types of things. Or like, is there any other like little rules of thumbs that you found that most people aren't aware of that you think, you know, even if it's a couple people doing it would make an impact? Oh, uh, definitely. If you look at seafood, the seafood's a, I like seafood. I eat seafood. I work in an aquarium. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if you look at where our seafood is coming from, the U.S. fisheries are some of the most well-managed fisheries in the world. But I think it's about 90% of the seafood consumed in the United States is not from the United States. It's from outside. We're importing most of our seafood. So if we have the best fisheries, why are we not eating our own fish? And so if we are purchasing U.S. seafood, not only do we help support local businesses that, you know, the fish markets, but also the local fisheries that they need to make money so that they can provide for their families. We, we support our own well-managed fisheries. We're probably eating seafood that is more responsibly caught. And then we're also using less energy to transport it anywhere. So there's a number of steps in the process of, you know, ocean to table that, that is the same idea as buying locally grown vegetables you're not spending the money to have it trucked or moved across the united states there's less water involved for all of the steps in between not just the putting the water on it so it can grow so that same idea of if you try to buy u.s fish you're automatically helping in a number of ways uh, not only for bycatch because our fisheries are intended to have as little bycatch as possible uh, we also have what's called incidental catch, where even if they didn't intend to catch a squid, they got a squid in their fish nets. They can still sell the squid at market. They're not going to be uh, fined or hurt. They, they get an opportunity to sell what they weren't intending to sell so that they're not just tossing things back in the ocean that weren't intended to be caught. Usually bycatch is deceased by the time they bring it on board. So they're just returning already dead animals, which is unfortunate. So if they get that opportunity to still sell something and then we're using our u.s seafood um, to a greater extent we're helping a lot and it puts a lot of effort on the consumer but it can have a huge effect if we start to understand where does our seafood come from uh if you love shrimp cocktails or rainbow trout where, where did those animals come from how did they get to your table and what could you could there be a better decision could you pick a different fish at a different time of year because it's a better time of year season for that animal, you know, trying something new, diversifying what you've been eating instead of your favorite all the time, which can be tough. I know I myself, I like my favorites. I want to stick to my favorites. So if we change up what we're eating, potentially, that's a huge thing. If you are picking something that's lesser known because it's a local animal, but it sounds kind of goofy to eat, like, oh, it may, might be something that's new that becomes your favorite. Well, in uh, South America, guinea pigs are... I think in Ecuador specifically, guinea pigs are like chickens. They eat them. Yeah. It's, uh, what we think of as food is in the United States is often very different from the world around us. And 
animals, not just animal species, but the, the way that they're served or prepared is so vastly different. I mean, the cultures are so widely different in how they treat food and what they consider food that um, why not try what the local cuisine would be if you're traveling somewhere else? It's all protein. The, one question I had about whales before we jump into uh, conservation deeply, I believe, and it would be nice to get this confirmed again because it's been a while since I read it, that when whales die, you know, they're, they're eating a lot of at the surface because they like kind of float around because they're, you know, buoyant. But eventually they sink to the ocean floor and their bones are so thick that there's bacteria that are able to like generate heat. Like they eat the calcium and they make like uh, thermal vents essentially. Like they heat up and then other creatures attach onto those, you know, cre uh, bacteria. Then they make like, like these little islands of heat. And then there's like little thermal vents around. Not, not actually thermal vents, of course, but like analogous to that where like these dead whales and they have bacteria on the bones because the bones are so thick for the calcium to do this. And then like other organiz organiza organisms kind of like build off of that. Is that is there a term for that? Because I, I, that's one of the things I read a while ago. There, There's a lot of things that try to consume whales. So when it falls to the ocean floor, it creates a new ecosystem called a whale fall. And the whale fall... There, you reach a point where all the scavengers have kind of picked the meats, the soft tissues away, and you're left with just the bones. There's these bone kind of drilling and eating worms, too, that will grow onto the bones. They, just, they land on a surface that can sustain their life, and they start growing there. So in some cases, the bones are completely consumed and eaten away, too. Uh, so on a whale fall, it's kind of an interesting area of study. It's fairly new in terms of marine biology ecosystems to study. And when you get a beached whale, if it's if it's deceased, if it hasn't been able to, people can save it, they might tow them out to sea. And certain researchers have gotten permits to specifically take them out to a site and sink them so that they can send ROVs or manned submarines down to observe the whale fall, the different stages of succession of scavengers and consumers until the, the bones are left clean or gone cases of like the bacteria or bone worms that's fascinating so whale fall is the term uh thank you for that so the last bit of questions i have are directly related to conservation what are some of the things i believe there were fishery conservations that you guys were working on that we wanted to talk about but um are there cons conservation are there po positive conservation stories out there that people should know more about? I would say yes. So uh, the the positive conservation stories are sometimes overlooked because a lot of the information that we provide the ourselves just as a news society is, is usually in the negative. But a lot of the whale populations have recovered because of our marine protected areas because of our fishery management because we've changed the technology that we use when we fish where we said this kind of technology while effective is not good for just catching one thing it catches everything so we're going to require that you change your fishing equipment or upgrade the technology uh, there's a lot of mammal species that have been able to recover because of that even turtles uh, if you look at what's called a TED a turtle exclusion device sea turtles have recovered in a lot of cases, 
I think all species of sea turtles still are considered endangered, but their populations are doing better in certain areas because the fishery management has changed how you can fish the things that are on the seafloor, and you have to have a trapdoor that would allow a sea turtle to escape. And so if the same kind of technologies were applied to nets or devices that capture fish and potentially mammals, more of the mammals can escape and survive also. So the, the sea turtle success in terms of how often sea turtles are caught as bycatch could be expanded into other species and other categories of life. What I remember we were talking that LA is trying to be like a green port. What are are there were there some things that they were doing in particular that's been successful? Yeah, the so when you if you're a container ship or an oil tanker and you're approaching the area, there's so many miles out that if you cut your speed down and you slow down, the the port would actually I think they give you a rebate or they, there's some sort of monetary reward for lowering your speed, which will use less fuel. Um, and then also you have the opportunity to see if there's a whale in your way, slow down, move out of the way, or, or what have you to allow that whale to not be struck by a, by a ship. That's one of the things is that they try to promote not only did the ships move slower in the area, they communicate to their incoming and outgoing ships or the pilots from the pilot house that are driving the ships in where there might be large animals and how to and whether or not they need to avoid them. Uh, they also have what's called shore power. So if you're a container ship and you, ship, you, you pull up to the port and you're waiting for the three days for the entire container ship load to be unloaded and a new set put on, you still need power. You still have to be able to run your ship. And where that power used to come from was just keep your engines on. So you're just burning fuel and polluting the air. But if you get put onto shore power, you basically plug in, you don't have to use your engines, and you're not polluting the air. So they, the port actually has air sensors in multiple areas to monitor the pollutant level. So it can immediately assess the parts per thousand million or billion, however they're uh, assessing certain pollutants, and determine how clean their air is at any given moment. And if the ships are on shore power, there's less of that exhaust being put into the air, which helps immensely just for air pollution for everybody. But so there's some of that. They've helped rebuild part of a rocky, shallow reef that's in the actually inside the harbor area so that some of the local species that would have normally been there come back. So they, they will dredge part of the harbor so that some of the bigger ships can actually get through. But they've rebuilt certain sections to be more like the former natural uh, seafloor dynamic and ecosystem. That's that's really fascinating, especially the the onshore power because generators in general are much more efficient at converting whatever their fuel is into like into like electricity over say a car or a, a tanker. So that's yeah. I can I can only imagine how much more efficient that is at reducing pollution. I w- I'm gonna I'm gonna do some research later and see like what the numbers are on that. But for people. For people who want to learn more about conservation, who have a passion about it, and want to, you know, conserve, for lack of a better term, is there a, are there places to go to learn? Are there books you would recommend? Actually, that's a, that's a good question. Are there resources to, to to pick up to learn how to be a conservationist, how to be more conservation friendly? Like any resources or or things like that where people can go to gain that knowledge, so they can start applying it. 
Uh, if you definitely want to go towards more of the hardcore, in-depth information, science journals and science articles have a lot of information about effects of ocean, ocean plastics or studies on ocean plastics or air pollutants, uh, monitoring all these things. So if, you, if you're one of those people that really loves to read science articles, there's a lot of journals that have that kind of information. But if you're a little bit more towards the average person side and think, well, I'm not 100% science literate, so how do I learn that? A lot of your basic institutions like zoos, aquariums, museums, uh, public outreach centers, there's a lot of opportunity for you to come in or even you, you can email like at the Aquarium of the Pacific. We have like a general question line. You can call or you can email. Like, you know, I want to learn more about this. What can you guys teach me or show me or help me learn? And we have staff members in our departments that can help answer some of these questions. Um, I actually had like a, a student, like a grad, grad, not graduate, a grade school student, asking about some whale biology questions. They wanted to know from a, a person that works at an aquarium, what, what can I know, what do we need to know about whales for this project? And they had some conservation questions in there. So if you're looking for more of a person-to-person -person contact, zoos, aquariums, museums, science centers, they have people that would be able to know and answer these questions and give you some like if you're just looking for well what what happens to this piece of trash once it gets into the ocean somebody's studied it and somebody else can interpret the science to someone that does not fully understand the science and i can echo those this point for everyone who is listening they responded to me and i, <laughs> I just randomly emailed them and they're like yeah we will talk to you so um they definitely i think there's like this fear that when you reach out to people that you don't know that they're going to be mean or any, yeah. you'll, you'll get grouchy people sometimes, but in my experience, for the people who are listening, you're going to be really surprised by how nice people are. You know, like, not everyone's a jerk. <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> you know, lead through the desire to learn and apply it, and I think you'll be received very well wherever you go. In my limited knowledge, that, that seems to be the case. Oh, definitely. And, you know, if you reach out to, to people who, who are educators... We love talking about stuff that other people don't know about. So it could be about anything. And he's like, oh, you want to learn more about this? Nobody ever asked me that question. Thank you for asking that question. I want to talk about this so much. So, uh, you know, reaching out to those educators in your, in your communities and your science centers, can they love talking. I personally love talking about some of the random things that people ask. And it's just like, oh, my God, I haven't had somebody ask me that question in, in years. That's awesome. Let's talk about this. And. So we, we get excited about sharing information. So those people who are, that's who they, that's what they are. That's what they do is share information. They are amazing resources. Mm -hmm. Are there any books in particular that would be a good primer on these subjects? Not off the top of my head. That's all right. I mean, you gave really good, you know, reach out to museums and, 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 uh, science centers. I think that's a good practical one, but I think, uh, so I'll, I'll add some recommendations somewhere because it's, I think a lot of people like to have a couple of primers because then it, it kind of educates you enough to ask a good question because sometimes people are just like, well, I want to learn, but I don't even know what the questions are. And then they get like right. stuck in like this. Oh, what do I say? What do I say? Like I, I try to <laughs> try to remove that. But uh, what the uh, transitioning over what as like a last question, what are what are some things that you wish people knew more about? Like, um. Uh, or that could be participants in, you know, like the the science policy woman, Elizabeth, 
she said that one of the ways you can help with uh, science spending and, and, and agriculture and food is to write your local congressman. And, and there's like a specific way she recommended it and even a book on how to do so that everyone can do to help change the world into how they want it to be, which is a, a Gandhi quote. But so is there are, there, are there things that people can do that we haven't spoke about or things that you would want people to know that you think would be very like critical if that makes a good sense, like like a call to action, like as a as like a of our final question. I definitely agree with the be involved, get to know who your representatives locally, statewide, nationally should be, so that if you have and something that you want to say, I don't think that's a law that should be in place, or I really want you to support this, and here's why, that they get to understand what their constituents actually are looking for. But before you kind of get to that point of you kind of should have learned something about that so that you're walking in with not only your desire, but evidence to back up why it is or is not a good decision. So that kind of desire that, that drive to learn about whatever it is that you want to affect change on and not just your side of the argument, but being open minded enough to listen to the opposing argument at a point where you can at least understand their perspective and where they're coming from and why they feel that way lends so much to understanding the entire picture. We all, I myself have done it too. We all kind of get stuck into a, a mode of, well, this is what I know and this is what is acceptable. And I, I reject your side of the argument and our brains are, essentially built to do that because if anything is too weird our brains like nope pass that's not right i don't like it our brains are just, they don't want to have something too different be introduced because it could be potentially dangerous but if we as you know incredibly intelligent beings have the ability to open ourselves to listening and learning and even if you still don't agree with them that's fine but you can still listen to their argument and understand their argument so that there's at least that perspective of, okay, so this is the opposite side of the table. This is where they're coming from. I can see why they do or do not like whatever position they have. And so here's how I can shape my position and how I might be correct or less correct or even completely wrong, depending on what the question or problem is and being open to change. I mean, that's kind of the heart of science is learning something, asking a question, learning about it, but also being able to go, hey, my my guess was absolutely, completely wrong, and that's okay. I've now learned something new, and I can move from that into something greater. I think the, the idea of science as just being lab coats and laboratories is also something that people should understand and, and figure out, is that we are all scientists. Um, Numerous public figures have said, we are born scientists. We are all doing the scientific method every day. When I was a high school teacher, uh, that was one of the first lessons I asked my, my students is, what is science? And we talked, we'd break it down to, science is simply a process, process of investigation. You do science every day. If I put a stapler in front of you, and the question is, is this a stapler? How would you figure it out? Would you just say yes or no a stapler or would you actually test it and like well yeah, i'd see if there's if 
it actually could staple something. Like maybe it's something in disguise. Maybe it's just a model of a stapler. It doesn't actually staple. So we always experiment. We always are learning something. So that process of investigation is everywhere. So if we all also in that learning of science think of ourselves as scientists, that breaks down that barrier of science is weird and crazy and I won't understand it. You will. We just maybe have to rephrase it so that it is something you can understand. It is something that you can be excited about. It is something that you want to involve yourself. And at the end of the day, for everyone who is listening, I think it's really important to not look at an, an issue and say, oh, whale. Get it? Like, uh, I, I was saving that the entire time. So, like, you talking about activism and be not just being loud, but being informed and not not just talking, but listening. You know, if everyone everyone has something to say, right? And if everyone's talking, who's listening? How can you get people right. to understand what you're saying if that person's talking? You know, like, as 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 you were talking, you didn't see me being like, and this is what I think about whales, and you were wrong. You know, like, because you can't listen. You can't learn. You can't, you know, see another person's perspective, which ultimately is one of the reasons why we engage in a community. Like, to have another person who cares and is, you know, isn't going to hit you over the head with a rock. And it's going to help you bring food in. And, you know, it's like a this pro-social thing that we all do. But, like, listening cannot be, like, overvalued. And I think that's a um, an amazing thing to leave on is this, like, don't don't put your hands up and say, oh, well. Um, <laughs> to, uh, you know, ask questions. Go to your museums. Go to your science institutions. Ask the questions that you care about. Even if it's like, hey, I care about this. What can I do to learn more? They're going to tell you <laughs> where you can learn more. And <laughs> and then, you know, you can reach out. And every one of us, I, I was talking to a startup like a couple of years ago. The average American has over 200 re- representatives from the, from the local to federal level. So if you want someone to talk to, there's a lot of people to talk to. And they don't really, like most people think you have like three, you know, like a councilman, governor, and like senator and... uh president as for the most part is a representative but like yeah we have like we have 200 200 elected representatives and they all need to know what you feel but they need to know your informed opinion or even if it's not too informed you can let them know concerns and like open up that dialogue while you try and learn because like people were like as i can only imagine as someone in those you know being your representative like when you come like oh i've really researched this thing i've talked to blah 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 and here here's my thoughts on this is there something we can do? You know, I can't imagine someone not responding favorably to that. Even if it's not something that they necessarily agree with, you put time and energy into that. And I think people really are energy and time and like how you communicate with people is one of the things, one of the most effective ways to communicate that you care. Right. So I think that's an amazing way to leave off of. We have had a great discussion about whales, about how you got into it. It's, you know, it's very roundabout. I'm glad that you moved from Colorado because I, I think it's very mountainous there. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, the ocean's, the ocean's better. You know, granted, you guys um, you guys get like something like 200-foot waves, and that's not something I want to ever experience. I don't know how people survive that. But And then we moved into some conservation things that we all can do. For instance, grab a bag, pick up more bags, recycle them appropriately. But we're all going to have to breathe this stuff in eventually if we don't do that. Um, I think that's a, a good place to stop. I want to thank you again for taking the time to, to talk with me today. I, I really enjoyed this. Whales are one of my favorite creatures on the planet, other than humans, which I feel like you have to like them because you are human. You can't really hate yourself <laughs> too much. Um, 
So yeah, is there anything as like a sign off? Is there like a Twitter or any way for people to follow you and your career development? Uh, sure. So I also want to thank you for providing the opportunity for us to kind of talk to you and your your listeners about all the stuff that we would like to offer for them. And if they want more information about the aquarium in general, we have our website aquariumofpacific.org, and through there we have a lot of different resources that people can learn about animals. But we also have a whale blog that we publish uh, twice a month to kind of show off to our public what are we seeing, maybe some scientific information about these animals, or just kind of get people excited about the whales that we can spot in Southern California. So if you go to aquariumofpacific.org slash blogs, you can actually look at all of our different blogs and you can find mine. And uh, my name is James Stewart, and thank you for listening. Yeah, and remember to share his content so he gets that promotion. Thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. I am your host, Lowell Thompson. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell Was Here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.